Welcome to Lo-Fi Lectionary. Hey everybody, it's, uh, it's Kevin here and welcome to the very first um, real actual episode of the Lo-Fi Lectionary. <laughs> I'm giggling, I'm so excited. This is going to be um, really interesting, it's going to be a lot of fun, at least for me, so I hope it's good for you too. Um, so this is episode one. We're going to go ahead and start jumping into the book of Luke. Uh, we're going to talk about Luke chapter one today, um, and it's going to be really good. I really like the book of Luke. I think you're going to dig it too. Um, before we actually jump into reading the actual book together, um, let me just kind of set the scene a little bit for the book itself. Um, so um, the book of Luke is going to be about, um, it's going to be a story of Jesus. Um, it's going to be kind of a, a, an ancient version of a biography about his life. Um, and in the story, he's going he's gonna to be born, he's going to live, he's going to die, he's going to rise again. Um, but the book wasn't written uh, while that was happening. The book was written actually much later. So what you're going to get from Luke are his uh, reflections back on what the life of, of Jesus was like. Um, and, uh, and some interesting things have happened between the time that Jesus lived and the time that the book is actually written. Um, so for instance, go ahead, disclaimer number one, I'm going to go ahead and call the author of this book, Luke. You may or may not believe that the person who wrote the book's name was actually Luke. Um, that's a fun discussion to have at another time for now, just for lack of ease and clarity. As we go through this long journey together, I'm going to go ahead and call the author Luke. Um, cool. I hope so. So, <laughs> so, uh, we're going to go ahead and call him Luke. So, um, so after the, the life and death of, uh, Jesus, you actually have some interesting things happen in the nation of Israel. Um, so you have the new movement, the new Christian movement, these people that believe that Jesus was the Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Savior, um, that he was someone very special. Uh, some even call him the Son of God. And, and you have them kind of starting off as a, a community within the wider community of, um, of uh, ancient Hebrew Jewish culture. Um, in Israel at the time, they're kind of based there. Uh, their, their kind of headquarters is in the capital, in Jerusalem, uh, where the temple is. And you can read a, a version of how that all kind of starts out in the book of Acts if, you, if you're interested in that. Maybe we'll get to it together later. But um, as that starts out, you have, it starts off with mostly um, Jewish people um, who are already part of the Jewish religion who now come to believe in a, a, a kind of movement within it that they're going to call Christianity later. Um, and so you kind of have them starting out as an offshoot. Now you have some people who seem to have no problem with that. You have some people that also, uh, seem to have a big problem with that, that these people are going around and, um, kind of saying some things that aren't, um, necessarily, uh, fit, uh, in with uh, a rather conservative or traditional, um, understanding of the Jewish faith. Um, and so that's kind of interesting. So you have these Jewish Christians who, um, are kind of trying to stay within their heritage and their tradition and their framework, but saying something new at the same time. Um, and that kind of puts them in kind of a peculiar, uh, precarious place within their community a little bit. Now you also have, um, as the, the, the Christian movement spreads, as they start to tell more and more people about this Messiah that they believe in, they, as they tell people about Jesus, you have uh, Roman citizens, non-Jewish folks, who also uh, start joining this movement and believing that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they kind of buy into the, a very, uh, um, not just to a new Jewish movement, but into a wider scale Jewish heritage um, as they kind of join this religion, this community of people. Um, and that kind of also puts them in a real interesting place because the, the Christian religion um, has some really interesting uh, differences from Roman religion, just to say the least. 
um, and things to say about how they live their lives and about who um, who the emperor is and who God is and things like that. Um, and that also kind of puts them in a precarious place because they're not um, they're not Jewish, but they're no longer exactly Roman in the same way. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and so as this church has grown, um, some other real big historical events happen. So for instance, um, other Jewish people are still trying to look for a Messiah or a Christ or a king figure um, to come in and be their savior, to rescue them um, from the Romans and make some big changes. Um, the, there's a number of different people who over time kind of get spotted out. Maybe it's this person, maybe it's this person. Eventually what happens is a bunch of these people kind of get together and there's a massive revolt against the Roman rule um, in the late 60s AD. Um, so about 30 years after Jesus lived. And um, the Romans put up with it for a little while and then they get really tired of it to say the least. So they basically send in a massive army to Jerusalem to quash the rebellion um, as um, devastatingly as possible. And so there's a, um, a massive war that takes place. Um, the Jewish forces get fought all the way back to the, to the grounds of the temple in Jerusalem. And uh, as the, the Roman armies approach the temple, they decide to, to end this as quickly as possible. And so one of them just throws a torch inside the temple to set it afire. And sure enough, that temple goes up in flames um, with a lot of people inside. Um, so what happens is, um, and I didn't really know this for a long time. For a long time, I'd heard that the temple was burned down. Um, and so I just kind of pictured a big stone building with like some smoke, uh, marks around it or something like that. Um, what actually happens with a lot of, um, old buildings, um, in the area, most old big buildings like that were built out of limestone stones. What happens is, is that limestone is, is kind of porous and sometimes has moisture inside when it's set on fire or there's big fires around it. It can do a couple things. Um, it can heat up and the moisture in the gas inside expands and it can explode basically, or just kind of crumble, fall apart. So um, we get reports of the Jewish temple basically being laid flat, being laid waste, um, you know, no stone upon another kind of stuff. Um, and that's essentially what happens as it's set on fire um, is the whole thing is just completely wiped out. Um, what uh, There's some pretty grisly accounts um, of what happened. Uh, during that fire, um, uh, one of the historians actually goes as far as to say that um, as the Jewish forces saw that the fire was starting, but that the Roman armies were outside, rather than surrender, they just leapt into the fire themselves um, and died um, in, inside the temple. So they could at least be there with the temple as it goes down. Um, so it's really sad. It's very grisly. It's very violent. Um, massive casualties. Um, and so this is the kind of state that the country is in as Luke is, is writing and then publishing and then sending around um, his gospel, his, his biography of Jesus. This is the setting that it's in. And so you have to kind of try and imagine the folks that he's writing to. Um, we'll get into it as we start reading the actual book. Um, but we're going to identify, uh, Luke's, um, audience as basically people who are already part of the Christian movement. Um, and you have to kind of think about what, how they might be feeling right now. Um, if, if they're Jewish and they're from the Jewish tradition and heritage, and this is their people, they just watched their people get wiped out. Um, they've watched the temple that's been the center of um, their political and religious life uh, get destroyed and weighed laced and lots and lots of people um, get killed. Um, and you have to wonder what it's like that they're going through. Um, maybe some doubt of 
I joined this new movement and then now this happened. Um, and so maybe I've made the wrong choice and I should have kind of stuck with the more traditional, um, uh, community within my religion. Um, or no, I, I, I bought into this new movement cause I believed it was right. And God, this is what you let happen. You let all of us get laid to waste and you let the temple get destroyed. I thought we were supposed to be saved. I thought this Jesus thing was real. Um, what do we do now? You also have uh, non-Jewish members of the Christian church um, early on who maybe now are looking around and wondering if they made a really bad choice joining this movement. Um, if this was the wrong uh, group of people to kind of put uh, their uh, their life into and to believe in. And so maybe they're looking around and being like, oh, this new group of people that I joined and kind of um, turned my back on some of my Roman culture for, they just got totally devastated and wiped out. Maybe this isn't the right place for me. Maybe these stories aren't really true. Um, maybe it's safer if I just go back to the way things were. So that's exactly where we're going to pick up the story uh, with Luke. It's the reason that I'm going to go ahead and introduce the book of Luke to you as the post-apocalyptic gospel because Luke and the people he's writing to have just been through an apocalyptic event uh, where they've lost uh, major sites of stability, sites of their culture, sites of their heritage, um, centers of, uh, of where they would be and understand their whole lives rotating around. And we're going to see what Luke does with that and how does he write a story to, uh, to teach people about God who have just been through the midst of such a devastating event. Um, so whatever you think of when you think of post-apocalyptic, whether you think of, you know, Walking Dead or uh, Fallout or any of that other fun stuff, um, this is the kind of community and situation that Luke is writing to. Um, and he's going to have to want to communicate what he wants them to hang on to and what he wants them to let go and where he thinks God is in the midst of all of this. So here we go. Our journey into Luke, the post-apocalyptic gospel. So here starts the text of Luke from the beginning of chapter 1. Since many of us have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who were from the beginning, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So it's a little dry <laughs> at the beginning, but this is actually a very uh, typical uh, introductory uh, little uh, section to add on to a piece of ancient writing. Um, it's, it's very typical for writing history or biography at the time. Um, in the section, Luke IDs the sponsor of it. So writing back then was super expensive because you had to pay not only for the time to write, but also for the materials, um, scrolls and paper and things like that were not cheap uh, back then. So you had to have a, a wealthy sponsor or donor. And here it's identified as someone named Theophilus, which means lover of God. Aw, isn't that so nice? Um, whether Theophilus was an actual person, or I've also heard some people uh, shoot out the idea that maybe Theophilus, uh, lovers of God, was kind of like a code name for a community or a group of people. Um, 
it's up in the air, but that's okay because that person is just the sponsor. So they're all, they're kind of targeted, um, and talked about in this little prologue as the audience. It's, it's really, he's writing this for everybody who's going to read it. Um, we do get a couple notes that kind of help us focus in on, on what Luke's idea and his, and his, his mission, or maybe his, his particular audiences, um, for instance, he says uh, that he's writing to tell people the truth about which they've already been instructed. So um, that kind of points out two things for me, which I think are interesting. Um, one, that Luke's audience, whoever he thinks is going to be reading this, is go- are going to be people who have already been instructed about the story of Jesus in one way or another. Um, and that for some reason, Luke seems to think that the way they've been instructed was insufficient. So um, maybe he just wants to share more of the story. Maybe he just wants to tell um, the story from a different kind of point of view or side. Or maybe it's possible that Luke actually thinks that the way people have been telling the Jesus story so far, either in writing or at churches or in communities, is not entirely correct. And so Luke goes through um, in this little prologue talking about how he's been carefully investigating everything from the first and going back to eyewitnesses and things like that. So he's dropping little hints that um, he thinks his version of the story is really, really good and really accurate. And he's put a lot of work into it, whether that's a um, uh, kind of a backhanded criticism of other writings or other ways people have told the story is kind of um, left a little bit unclear. Um, what's kind of a really fascinating idea is maybe versions of the story that we have collected in the Bible are actually versions of the story that Luke is right here saying, those are incomplete. And I need to get, I want to give you my version of it according to my research. Cause I think it's better, which is kind of just an interesting thing. I'm just going to shoot out there for you guys. Um, and then one other thing I want to point out real quick here is that, um, he talks about his version, his account, his writing being an orderly account. Um, This is really important for us to remember. Luke has made choices about how to tell the Jesus story. Now, he's doing that in direct contrast to the way it's been told in other places and by other people. Um, But he's made choices about how to arrange the story, how to tell the story, what words to use, and things like that. Um, And those are deliberate, according to him. He wants it to be orderly. Um, And we should be thoughtful about that, because um, especially if you've read other books of the Bible you might find that Luke's version of the story is a little bit different and maybe that's okay because he's just, he's made choices about how to tell the story differently. And we should just think about why would Luke want to tell the story that way? That's a fun question, isn't it? um, Also um, just in the order of the events, um, Luke is telling us that he's been careful in setting up in what order he's writing them. So anytime we get to a particular story, we're always going to stop for a moment and it's always to our benefit to look to at what story came just before it and look at what story comes just after because they're going to help us make sense of what's going on in the story that we're reading right there. So ready for it? We're going to jump into the actual story. Here we go. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. What a great way to start a story. <laughs> there's going to be, oh man, there's so much good stuff in here. Um, so just right off the bat, a couple things I want to point out. Um, 
we get to meet our first two characters, Zechariah, who's a priest um, from a priestly order. So he's, he's got a tradition in the family of being priests. And his wife, who is also priestly, but her order goes all the way back to being a descendant of the very first priest. of a, a, So she's a descendant of Aaron. And oh man, so these people have credentials, you guys. Um, they're super priests. Um, they're both of priestly lines and they both married each other. Um, and to be in the priestly lineage at the time was uh, a privileged social class. Um, it didn't necessarily mean that you were super wealthy or anything like that, but you had a certain social standing because you were picked um, in part of this one bloodline whose job it was to take care of God's house and to help people um, experience God and, and go to worship correctly and help people take care of their problems, things like that. So you were super special. If you were in a priestly line, um, you were born into it and you couldn't join any other way. And man, both of these people, Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth, are born into it. They're kind of like two Roosevelts. <laughs> um, they're like FDR and Eleanor. Um And so they're married, and uh, what's interesting about them is it says that they are righteous before God, living blamelessly. Um, This is code language. This is code language that actually comes from a number of stories in the Old Testament. Um, Often when uh, a story is being set up where someone's going to do something really big and major, it talks about how righteous or blameless that they were at the time. Um, And honestly, it doesn't happen that often (laughs) because... You guys, if you guys have read the Bible or if you just heard the stories, maybe you didn't catch on uh, one of the punchlines of, of so many stories in the Bible is that people are messed up. Even biblical hero people are really messed up. So when it talks about how they're labeled blameless or righteous, they're in a group of only five people that I can count throughout the whole Bible up until their point that are actually called righteous or blameless. So Luke is setting these characters up. To be something really big. He's setting the story for something huge to happen because very rarely are people ever righteous or blameless before God. Um, and then we learn something else about them that kind of works in contrast. We learn that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Um, Now, the way this is written is that it's Elizabeth is barren, but back at the time, um, because of of what we know now with medical science, it could have been either of the two parents um, that maybe a medical issue was going on um, that led to them not being able to have children. But this is a really, really big deal. Um, So if you've read the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, um, it starts out with the story of creation, which follows to the story of Adam and Eve, the first two people. Um, Adam and Eve make some mistakes and some curses are laid upon them that are told they're going to carry throughout the rest of humanity. And one of them is that uh, childbirth will be difficult for Eve. And that's kind of her share of the curse to bear. Um, And so whenever people have trouble with childbirth in the Bible, um, if you're a reader of it, or if you were a person who knew them at the time, it's always going to make you think back to that story from the book of Genesis about how Eve was cursed because of their sin and their mistakes to have troubled childbirth. So as a result, whenever people in in, in the ancient time um, in this culture had trouble with childbirth, often they were sometimes looked upon with suspicion of having done something wrong, of angered God in some way that the curse of painful or difficult childbirth is being laid upon them 
in a very much more heavier way than it is for even everybody else. Now, it actually goes beyond this because some people have even um, described its cultural impact as being like if someone walked around in your town, village, household who was childless, it wouldn't only remind you of maybe their cursedness or of their problems or trouble before God, but it would remind you that you're all under the curse and that everything is a little bit broken or messed up. So when you're barren like this and when you're a couple and you're childless and you can't have children, you are kind of walking reminders for everyone else in the community that things are not right. And so Elizabeth and Zechariah are these two interesting characters who find themselves in this unique place of being kind of part of this privileged kind of super priest kind of uh, heritage that um, should be, should kind of elevate them in the community. And at the same time, because they're childless, always have to live with not only their certain sadness over themselves, not having, um, being able to have children like they might want, but also the kind of reflection of, um, brokenness or, or things not being right in the, the midst of the community. What's really cool about Elizabeth and Zechariah, though, is that um, they're going to be part of something big that God is going to do. God chooses these people who are kind of bearing under the weight of uh, some social stigma and of some sadness and disappointment in their lives of things not having gone right. But maybe they're part of it because even in the midst of kind of carrying around um, some social stigma, but then also um, carrying around the kind of sadness and disappointment that they can't have children like they want to, that they are still living well. They are living and trying to follow all the rules and regulations that are before them in their community. They're still trying to live very right. Um, I mean, when you experience tragedy and you have to live with the results of that tragedy every day of your life, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that makes people either Batman or the Joker. Um, These are people that make someone Lex Luthor or Superman. And what's cool about Elizabeth and Zechariah are they're they're being Batman. They've chosen to, to work hard and remain blameless. And these are just the kind of people they are. And let's see what happens when God enters the story a little bit. Uh, So here we go. So the story continues. Once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified. And fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know that this is so? For I am an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you the good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondered at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he could not speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she remained in seclusion. She said, This is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably upon me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. All right, so we're going to stop here and talk about the story a little bit. Um, so the story goes on uh, to where Zechariah, he's a priest, um, and he gets called up for his term to go work in the temple. So when you were a priest, uh, you were part of a large tribe of people, and only some of you needed to be working at the temple at a time. So it was kind of like being in the military reserves. You could go home, and you could work your farm or work your business, and then when you were needed, you would be called up for a few weeks at a time to go serve in the temple in Jerusalem. And even amongst them, uh, the people that were serving in the temple at a time, only certain tasks require only a couple people. So uh, Zechariah gets chosen by lot. So they kind of roll dice uh, to see who gets picked um, to go in and offer the incense offering at the temple. So remember, the people reading this book are people who think the temple was great and was amazing. It was the center of their culture, and it's just been laid waste. So you can kind of imagine as they read or hear the words about the temple and about the sacrifices being going there and the priestly system and things like that, their hearts are probably a little bit heavy but a little bit wistful at the same time as they're about to see a scene in the temple that they remember. And um, so Zechariah gets to go in, and he offers the incense offering. Now, the incense offering that he's offering is uh, would come immediately after the offerings of atonement. So they would offer a sacrifice in the temple to kind of, as their way of saying to God, sorry for everything bad we do, um, here's a sacrifice, here's an offering for you. And when that was completely over, then one of them would go inside and offer the incense offering closer to the inside of the temple. Um, and as you kind of went through layers of the temple, like an onion, um, the core was kind of where God, like like his presence dwelt. And so every time you go insider or insider or closer and closer, you're getting closer and closer to God. Um, and so Zechariah gets chosen to go in and go closer. And Luke completely skips over whatever scene happened when they're offering the sacrifice of atonement. Not interested in it. The story doesn't start off with people talking about how sad they are and sorry they are. It starts off with one of them, Zechariah, going in and making the, off the incense offering. Now, incense in the offering signifies the presence of God because it was kind of cloudy and smoky. Um... And it also it signified their presence. It also kind of just had a ceremonial practical use and that it helped kind of cover the smell. If there was any kind of, um, when they offered all those sacrifices and offerings, you're basically burning things and a lot of those were animals. And so the incense would kind of help it be a little bit more pleasant inside there, I think. Um, but then also, um, the incense offering happens kind of to the right side of the altar. Um, and this is the moment where they believed that if God was ready to speak something of blessing in return to them for having already made atonement for our, for having asked for forgiveness of God, that it was going to happen right now. So Luke's story starts off with, 
the moment when if God is going to show up and do something good and declare his favor on people, this is the moment when it would happen. And sure enough, he goes in, he makes the offering, and then he sits uh, for the ritual. And sure enough, the angel of God shows up. Gabriel shows up. And what are the first words out of the angel's mouth? Do not be afraid, for your prayers have been heard. You will have joy and gladness, and everyone will rejoice at the sight of your son's birth. Um, he's declaring favor over Zechariah and over the people. He's saying that God has heard your prayers, and it's not all about how you guys need to be. It's not even about what you do. It's just that God is ready to do something big and really good for all of you. So get ready for it. That's so interesting that the story starts off with a pronouncement of just how good God is and how his favor is ready to just be poured out. It's kind of interesting. Um, so, um, um, uh, of course, Zechariah has this uh, little moment where he's like, how am I going to know that this is so? So he expresses a little bit of doubt. Um, the language there isn't totally clear, but you know, the angel at least receives it as doubt. He's like, because you didn't believe in the fact that I just showed up and told you this, um, here's what's going to happen. And for the longest time, whenever I read this story, I always thought like, oh, it's because Zechariah expresses some doubt that he's punished by being made silent. Like, like his muteness is like a punishment upon him. That's going to like teach him a lesson to not doubt God anymore. The more and more I read the story and the more I read all the other stories in the Bible, I actually start to think about it a little bit differently. I think it's actually a way to help Zechariah remember that this crazy thing happened. So he just sees a vision of an angel inside the temple and he expresses a little bit of doubt. So visions and big things aren't enough to quell um, or to quiet all of the doubts that Zechariah has, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um and so Gabriel's like, okay, because you have a little bit of problem with trust, and because it's going to be hard for you maybe to remember that this thing happened and that you're not crazy, that it's real, I'm going to take away your ability to speak until it comes to happen. So all the way through the term of this pregnancy, you're not going to be able to talk so that way you remember what I'm telling you right now, that your son is going to be born and you should name him John and he's going to be a good blessing for other people and he's going to help them make their hearts ready for the Lord to come. So maybe his muteness isn't so much of a punishment. Maybe it's actually kind of a gift. Because as we see, as soon as Zechariah leaves the temple, everyone else is like, oh, something happened. We don't know what happened, but something happened and is going to come. So the, the, the muteness actually becomes a sign, not just for Zechariah, but for everybody that something big is going to happen. And sure enough, when, uh, when Zechariah goes home, he, uh, he, him, him and him and Elizabeth, um, spend a night together, um, as moms and dads do. And she conceives and for five months, she relames in seclusion. She kind of plays it close to the chest. She keeps it quiet. And I have to wonder if that's because it's even hard for her to believe that this is coming true and then you get this wonderful statement from elizabeth it's almost like a prayer and she says this is what the lord has done for me when he looked favorably upon me and took away the disgrace that i have endured among my people remember she's not young she's lived a long time with the disgrace of being childless and now she's with child and i can just imagine the joy in her heart 
of knowing what's to come and of being, uh, maybe having it shown to her and made clear to her that she is not cursed, but that God is looking favorably upon her. The favor starts with Elizabeth, which is pretty cool. All right, let's go to the next part of the story. So picking up where we left off in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her, who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. So the the, the scene shifts and now it's it's away from Zechariah and Elizabeth and we get a new character. We get a character named Mary. And Mary lives in a town in Galilee called Nazareth. A couple things that we know just about Mary right off the bat is that she's a cousin of Elizabeth, which means that she is likely part of this priestly lineage. She's part of the bloodline that has a little bit of elevated social status, um, but that she lives in Nazareth. And later on in another Gospels, you're going to get people who actually tell jokes about um, Nazareth as kind of being um, kind of like the sticks, um, not, not, not the best town to live in, kind of on the outskirts of things. Um, so that's where Mary lives. Um, and the angel shows up, and at first, the angel's response is to tell Mary, please don't be afraid. Um, sometimes we forget this because uh, the way we often kind of characterize angels in popular American culture is that they're kind of like chubby little cherub kids and stuff like that who are just all about peace and love. Um, usually when the angel showed up, it meant that you were in big trouble. <laughs> so the angels speak with the authority and power of God, and there are stories of them um, uh, you know, kind of acting on, on God's kind of sometimes more, more violent, uh, wishes and things like that. So when an angel shows up, it's maybe not a great thing that's about to happen. So an angel shows up and the first thing that the angel has to tell Mary is do not be afraid for you have found favor with God. Again, um, the introduction for these characters starts off with God going out of the way to pronounce his favor and his goodness upon people. The story in Luke, the story of God's and what God is going to do among them starts off with cementing the idea that God is good and wants to do good things in the world. That's pretty important and it's pretty big. So he shows up to Mary and the good thing that God is going to do is um, 
he's gonna have her uh, conceive and uh, and be pregnant, have a baby. Um, which for Elizabeth and Zechariah, this is what they've been waiting for. This was going to be a really, really good thing. It was going to be the fulfillment of all of their hopes and dreams, and it was going to restore them among their community and their people. For Mary, it's going to be a little bit different because she's a virgin and she's only engaged to a man. And if she conceives child, everyone's going to wonder where that child came from. And it might seem like they were kind of in the culture where they could say, well, it's from God, but no, not really. (laughs) Um, God helping Zechariah and Elizabeth become pregnant and have a child is a good thing for them. For Mary, it's not necessarily a good thing. But Mary's response isn't, please don't. It's, okay, tell me how this is going to work. How is this going to be? Because I'm a virgin. And so the angel explains, here's the plan. Um, The Spirit of God is going to come upon you. And and that's how you're going to conceive a son. And that's why the son is going to be called the child of God. And so Mary, in the face of what the angel is proposing is going to happen, telling her what God's plan is, that God's plan is to do something really good for all the people, but in a way that's going to cause her a lot of pain and possibly a lot of trouble. This, her life could be over for all she knows. She says, yes, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. So that, again, shows her to be pretty remarkable. Um, so just like Elizabeth and Zechariah of this this potentially tragic thing coming upon them, and and these are the kind of people that choose to do what's right even in the midst of it. That's the kind of person that Mary is as well. She kind of uh, is the hero of the story in that way. Um, and instead of um, offering the same kind of sign um, that the angel offered uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah and Zechariah's quietness, his muteness, um, he offers this. He says, oh, Um, just in case, you know, you kind of need this to be confirmed, your cousin Elizabeth is also having a miraculous child and she's in the midst of her pregnancy. Um, but Mary, yours is going to be an even bigger deal because she's married. So we know where that child came from. Yours is going to come directly from the spirit of God. It's an even bigger deal. And so Mary accepts, um, and she might lose everything, but she willingly is willing to surrender her privilege and her social status and her comfort in order to be part of the favorable work that God is doing in the world. Isn't that interesting? Um, I love these people. We've only met three so far in the story and I already really like um, who they are. Let's go ahead and continue on in the story. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. And Mary said, 
My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and then returned to her home. Okay, for those of you who are mathematicians, you've been counting, right? How many times has the Holy Spirit done something in this book? It's three. It's three times so far. And what's interesting that I want to point out here is that it never, we never yet have seen the Holy Spirit act in the context of where you'd expect the Holy Spirit to be, which is in the temple. We've had a scene in the temple, but the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything there. The Holy Spirit of God is always active outside of the temple. Luke is making a really big theological statement here of um, kind of pointing out that, yes, the temple is important. That's kind of where our lives are centered around. But God is active everywhere outside of it. You almost wonder if he's going way out of his way to remind the people that he's writing to that we don't have the temple anymore, but that doesn't mean that God isn't active all around us. Pretty interesting. So here's what happens next in the story. Mary goes to a safe place. Gabriel told her about how uh, Elizabeth is with child, and she goes over to visit Elizabeth. And Elizabeth greets her in just this wonderful, wonderful, joyous, warm way. Blessed are you among women. Mary is not going to hear that from anyone else for a while. As soon as it becomes apparent that she can't hide that she's pregnant anymore, she's going to be facing tough questions from her family and her friends and be looked upon in a very different way by all of her community. But the first person she goes to is someone who understands, someone who knows someone that she's safe with, someone who pronounces blessing over her. Okay, so a quick note. Um, this is one of the coolest things that I've kind of learned about ancient religion is that they believed in what we call dynamic, um, the dynamic power of language. So words, they believed, actually had an effect on things. And when we said things that actually made things happen in the world. So the easiest examples of these are kind of like if you think of like old time witchcraft with like curse words and incantations and things like that. There was this idea that if you put the right words together and use them in the right way, it actually affected the world. Well, that's not too far from the way that they actually thought about prayers or about blessings or songs or things like that. They had this idea that the words that we use actually affect the world around us and create things and things like that. So even in the Bible, you have God creating by speaking in the book of Genesis and so whenever you see people praying or saying blessings over people, they're actually trying to create a reality, a reality around them for those people. So Mary shows up and Elizabeth's first response upon seeing her is to pronounce a blessing over her to create a safe place and environment for her. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. What I think is really interesting is that in postmodernity, we've actually kind of rediscovered the dynamic power of language. 
that the words that we use when we talk to people, like we can study this with psychology, have an effect on creating a reality for that person. And the words that we have in our language and our vocabulary and, and from where we live actually create the thoughts within us that we use to interpret and understand everything about the world. So we're actually kind of rediscovering the dynamic power of language a little bit. A little side note there for you. Kind of interesting. But, um, so Mary and Elizabeth meet, they have this blessing, the child leaps inside of Elizabeth's womb, the God is very active with all of these people. And then you get this wonderful song from Mary where she sings about how God is the one who kind of brings down the high and uplifts the low and brings justice and goodness and fills the hungry but sometimes sends the rich away empty. There is so much going on in the story so far, and especially with this song, because in one hand, Mary is excited because God is looking on favor with the people and he's doing something. He's bringing the savior, the Messiah through her. And that's great because they need it. There is a lot of low people who are poor and needy who need the favor of God. And there's a lot of people who are very well off who kind of need to be brought down possibly a little bit who have been using their power and their privilege in the wrong ways. And yet at the same time, it's the song is a little bittersweet for me and it's beauty because Mary is being brought up because she's being asked to be part of God's plan and giving of being given a very special place in that, in the story. And yet she's being brought down because she's having to sacrifice a lot of her status and her privilege at the same time. And you see that language of up and down and closeness and awareness in the song and strength and weakness. It's, it's, it's really, really interesting, deep stuff. Um, so there's a lot going on. Um, and it already kind of paints a very political picture of what uh, Mary and what Luke uh, think that God is going to be up to throughout the rest of the story. Um, there's talk of politics and talks of the economy and power and money and justice. These are the things that God is going to be up to in the world through what he's doing with Mary. Um, that's really interesting because often we don't think about religion as having really much to say about that, at least not in a meaningful, helpful way. <laughs> um, sometimes we think it's all about our emotions and how we feel and just getting to heaven and not really saying much about how we're living life today right now. But in the book of Luke, God is very, very interested in what people are doing right now in their lives today. And so you can imagine a people in a post-apocalyptic community who have maybe been raising their fist to the sky and cursing God or wondering where he went or wondering why things have gone so wrong for them and their people. And here, through the writing of Luke, you have the words of Mary singing this wonderful song over their community that know Things happen, and it's hard, and it's tough, but God is good, and his blessing and his favor is upon us. Isn't that interesting? All right, let's continue on with the next part of the story. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him Zechariah after his father. But his mother said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives has this name. Then they began motioning to his father to find out what name he wanted to give him. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. 
And all of them were amazed, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was freed, and he began to speak, praising God. Fear came over all the neighbors, and all these things were talked about all throughout the entire hill country of Judea. All who heard them pondered in them and said, What then will this child become? For indeed, the hand of the Lord was with him. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably upon his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets of old that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown his mercy promised to our ancestors and he's remembered his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness, in righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God. The dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. So again, we get this nice uh, next part of the story. Uh, John is born and to Elizabeth and Zechariah and um, the birth scene here is, is very, it's, it's really nice. It's really warm. They're surrounded by friends and family who are just there to celebrate and rejoice with them. They know how long Elizabeth and Zechariah have been waiting for a kid. And now the kid is here. And so everyone is just so happy. It's, it's, it's a really nice, really warm part of the story. Um, and, uh, this time Zechariah has a chance to, to kind of offer a prayer, offer a blessing, offer a song. And in his, it has the same themes uh, that we find in some of Mary's song about how um, God is remembering his promises of old and remembering their ancestors and is now doing something together. This whole theme of of something was promised and now God is remembering. Something was said to come and now God is following through on that. These are huge themes for a people who have just experienced an apocalyptic loss of big parts of their community and family and friends. That where is God? Does God remember us? Does our faith mean anything anymore? Here we have the characters once again saying, yes, God sees, God remembers, and he's going to look favorably upon us right now. And things are going to happen. And what things are going to happen? Well, according to uh, Zechariah's song, uh, just to quote this part of the end, it says, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah's view of God is that God is ready to pour out mercy and goodness on people, to bring light where there is darkness. Um, So again, you have to remember that to a people who have just experienced great tragedy, this starting of the story is all set up to remind them that God is good, that God is with them, that God is active, that God is present, and that God isn't about vindication or revenge, but he's about mercy and goodness and bringing light into the world. 
And that closes out Luke 1. Um, so it's all just really setting the scene for um, where we're going to go next in Luke 2, where, where Jesus is going to be born. Um, but it's some interesting stuff. Um, I mean, going back to that prologue at the beginning, uh, that Luke is writing an orderly account, um, and he's done investigative research, and he's spoken to eyewitnesses and things like that. Um, I think it's kind of good for us to just stop and think about the idea that Luke really believes the story, or at least he intends those who read it to believe that it's true. Now, you don't have to believe that this is true. I don't have to believe that this is true, but Luke believes it is. He believes he's communicating true things about God and about people and about what God does in the world. So let's kind of go through our, our questions. One, um, who is God in the story? What is God like? Um, there's some really interesting things just here in Luke 1 that God seems to be all about goodness and about bringing favor into the world, which is just um, pretty incredible. The, the, the first painting that Luke wants to paint us about God is just about how good God is and about how God wants to help and God wants to fix things and God wants to remember promises and God wants to be faithful and good. And everyone's just singing songs about how good God is all throughout this story. Um, you know, we don't always talk about God that way. Not all religions talk about God that way. Not all other books of the Bible talk about God that way. Luke starts off by making it very clear that in, according to his point of view, God is very good. And everything else that happens off here in the rest of the story has to be rooted in this idea that God's favor is upon people and that God wants the world to be saved and to be good and for people to be prepared to meet him. Um, that's really important. Um, a couple other things, God really shows up in some unexpected ways. He's not in the temple so much like Zechariah has that one vision there, but all of the rest of the action happens outside of where you would expect it. He picks an unexpected barren couple to bring, um, the first child that's going to be part of the plan. He goes and he picks um, a little a virgin girl who lives in the sticks uh, to be another part of his plan. And he asks her to give up everything. Everything that God does is kind of unexpected and surprising. Um, and we shouldn't forget that because that really sets the tone for, as we go throughout the book of Luke, um, if you buy into what Luke's saying that as you see Jesus doing something, that this Jesus is the son of God, so he's kind of like, he is God, kind of walking around among people, there's going to be some people who are very surprised about what he does. And some people are going to be very pleasantly surprised. They're going to say, this is great. This is what I've been waiting for. And there's going to be some people who are upset and angry because that's not what they want God to be doing. It's going to be really interesting. Um, and uh, yeah, and that even that God, um, I mean, just I, I can't get over just what he does with Mary. I've just um, he invites Mary to be part of his plan, but he asks her to give up a lot and to sacrifice a lot. Um, God in, in the book of Luke is asking people to do really tough, difficult things, even as he's handing out favor and blessing. Um, and that's who God is in Luke 1. And so kind of who are the people in Luke 1? Um, we get these characters who are um, who are very much our, our heroes. Um, they're people, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who ex experienced um, some hardship themselves and had some of their dreams crushed over time. Um, you have to imagine that maybe part of their, um, you know, Elizabeth being barren is, isn't that she couldn't conceive, but she couldn't carry a child to term. So maybe time and time again, they've tried to have kids. Maybe they've buried a lot of kids and then finally 
God shows up and he says, this, this one's gonna, this one's gonna work. That's pretty heavy stuff. Um, and all through the midst of that, they've worked to remain blameless and good and to do what they believe is right. Um, these people are awesome. <laughs> these people are heroes. They're people that experience hardship, but don't give up. They persevere. They remain faithful. And those people respond well and are ready when God shows up to just pour out all of his favor and his goodness upon them. And then we get people like Mary who are willing to sacrifice their comfort, their privilege, their status, their reputation in order to be part of what God is doing um, for them, but uh, mostly for the rest of the world, for other people. Um, and those are the people that respond well to God and are part of his plan and are part of something good in the world. That's really interesting. Um, so then third question, um, why would, you know, Christian communities keep Luke one around? Why do they keep telling it, you know, every year at Christmas time or, um, why did we even keep it in the book um, as they kind of put the Bible together? Uh, th there's a couple things. I think the story reminds them just of the goodness of God, um, that this God that they believe in is 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 good <laughs> as opposed to angry or primarily wrathful or primarily um, asking a lot of them. Um, this God is here to um, be good and active in the world. Um, this God is interested in helping and saving and restoring uh, things for people and bringing justice for the hungry and the low in the world. Um, this story also reminds them that they, if they're going to be a part of God's plan in the world, might have to be ready and willing to sacrifice big, important things. Um, if they're going to be a part of God's goodness, um, and maybe that even then that that's, that's a way that they will experience God's goodness, that that involves sacrifice and hardship and endurance and perseverance. Um, I don't think that the story necessarily uh, points towards a martyrdom or a, a persecution complex like some Christians have, but it does remind us that um, it's not all uh, uh, about us or about them. And that maybe the story, um, Mary becomes a model for them of sometimes we have to give up really important things in order to be a part of bringing really good things into the world. Um, and I think last thing that the story just kind of um, presents a hope that God can work. Um, religious people can find that God can work beyond the boundaries of what we imagine um, might be in place for God. Um, so again, if you're talking to people who have just lost everything and are wondering if God is still around, if God is still alive, um, how do we keep following God without the temple or with all of my family who I've lost in the war, um, in the tragedy, uh, um, where do we go from here? Um, how can we even go forward that this story presents this idea that God works beyond those boundaries. And that, so there is hope for those people. And even in the midst of their pain and their loss and their apocalyptic horror, that they're not alone. That even if they are feel barren themselves to bring anything good into the world, that God is the one who brings life and goodness into the world. And we can be a part of that. Um, I think that's why Christians keep this story around. Um, it presents a lot of hope. Um, so there we go. That's kind of the end of the first episode. And oh my gosh, it was a long one, wasn't it? <laughs> I don't think the other ones are going to be this long. Um, Luke chapter one is a long time. Plus we had a lot of history at the beginning. So if you've made it all the way to the end, whew, I hope you got something good out of it. I hope you've loved it. I loved doing this. This was a lot of fun. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, episode two where we'll dig into Luke two. 
Yeah, and that's going to be great. Um, I hope that this uh, podcast was something really good for you. Um, I created that tagline that I hope the Lo-Fi Lectionary is a conversation about the Bible for the religiously burned out, like I often find myself, or the spiritually curious, maybe, who are discovering this for the first time, that it kind of opened up the, the text a little bit for you and you see the story, that whether you believe in it or not, or um, whether you're religious or not, or whether you uh, you think that there's truth in here or not, that you see that the story has some humor in it, that it has some maybe some good things to teach us, uh, depending on where we find ourselves in the religious spectrum. Um, and I hope that uh, you've you've seen that the the idea of the story of Jesus starts with that God is good, and we'll see where we go from there. Um, so uh, what better way to finish then than with uh, these last words from the from that poem of Zechariah, which have stuck with me for the last few weeks. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. I hope that this episode has brought a little bit of light into you and that uh, it's maybe inspired you to go share a little bit of light with someone else who may be in the midst of darkness. I'll see you guys next episode. Have fun. Well, that's the end of the episode, but don't go yet. Hi, everyone. I just want to say a quick thank you to you for listening to this episode of Lo-Fi Lectionary. If you liked the podcast, please help us out. You can review, subscribe, and share the podcast any way you can. Um, the more people we get in on the game, the funner this is going to be. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion for this episode, you can come visit our website at kevinlester.net. And follow the links to the podcast and then to the link for this episode. Um, you can also find our podcast on Facebook. And we can discuss and, and keep things going on there. Uh, just search Facebook for Lo-Fi Electionary and you'll find us. You can also get in touch with me, Kevin, directly at lo-fi at kevinlester.net. And that's lo-fi with no dash. So L-O-F-I at kevinlester.net. And you can also find me on Twitter at lo-fi Kevin with no dash again. So at lo-fi Kevin. Um, that's kind of it. So thank you for coming and we'll see you guys next episode. Thank you for listening.